0: morning everyone we are in the middle of a series called understanding the spiritual journey and we're taking a look at each decade of life exploring the particular struggles that confront us as we move through those decades and turning to scripture for help and hope and last week we looked at the spiritual journey of childhood and this week we're looking at the spiritual journey of the teenage years The teenage years are likely some of the most turbulent that we'll face. Teens are seeking to survive the transition from childhood to adulthood, and that's a transition that leaves them often feeling vulnerable and ill-equipped for the new challenges they face. What do teens need to know in order to live this stage of their journey well? And how can those of us with teens support teens effectively in order to help them flourish and thrive. That's what I'm going to tackle today. Let's start by looking at a snapshot of life in the teens. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the teens are a decade where the goal is often simply survival. It's about saving yourself, trying to keep your head above water amidst enormous upheavals on every level. And remember, when we're talking about the teens, we're not just talking about high school. This decade stretches from age 11 to 19, which means movement into junior high all the way through until third year university, maybe uh, completed a college diploma and actually transitioning out into the workforce. So a lot is happening between the start and end of this decade. The teenage years are a really stressful time. There are new social pressures that teens face. There are new academic pressures that present themselves. There are new relational pressures that confront teens and often amidst these uh, pressures, teens lack a really robust support system to know how to navigate these things in a healthy way. The teenage years are a painful time. Many teens speak about the experience of being bullied. Um, Teens are often living amidst family breakdown or family dysfunction. There are things happening in the family system around this age that uh, put a lot of strain on parents and on marriages, and teens often bear the brunt of that. It's a confusing time. Teens get mixed messages all the time, right? Don't do drugs, but try new things. There are all these voices that are vying for their attention and their allegiance, and figuring out which voices to listen to, trying to discern. An answer to the question, who am I going to give authority to speak into my life, uh, becomes a really, really critical question for teens to face. But it's a really exciting time, too, because it's a time time of searching and questioning. It's a time of rebellion, of kind of coming into your own space. You're individuating from your family of origin. They're starting to have a a broader and more robust sense of personhood. There's new opportunities and possibilities that present themselves. And spiritual interest is often highest during the teen years. Teens are asking big questions, and they're not afraid to search uh, recklessly for the answer. And it's also an unstable time. A lot of teens are living, especially in the first uh, leg of that decade, with... A foot in two worlds. you got one foot in the world of childhood and one foot in the world of adulthood. And that can feel really awkward, and often does. Even by the late teens, it's not uncommon to hear those in this decade say, adulting is hard. Adulting is hard. I wanted to grow up. I, I was looking forward to the process of growing up and being an adult and being able to access the freedoms that I believed Came with adulthood. and Now that I'm here, it's just really stressful and overwhelming. And it's also an unstable time because for teens, their their experience, kind of on the ground level of their life, is often filled with the most emotional fluctuations. And part of that is just because of the physiological changes that are happening because of puberty, but also because they're facing things for the first time. And so. When the lows hit, the lows hit really, really hard. And when the highs come, they come really, really high. And so instead of having this kind of flat, uh, even keeled movement through the teenage years, there's often uh, really large hills and valleys. So it's a very, very unstable time. What are the major challenges, the major spiritual challenges of the teen years? Well, I think the primary one can be summarized by the idea of identity formation. A teen is trying to figure out who they are, what they value, and how those are gonna shape their life in the decades to come. Teens are asking questions. Well, they're certainly probably obsessed with the four questions that have been called the four worldview questions. And those questions are this. Who am I? Where am I? What's the problem and what's the solution? Those four questions you have to address at some point in your life in order to be a fully engaged human being. And teens are moving into those questions and where they might have, they might have answers to them arising out of childhood, they might have had these kind of vague inherited answers, now they're seeking to answer those for themselves. Who am I really? I know my family's perception of me, but who am I? And where am I? What's the nature of the world that I find myself a part of? What's the problem? Teens are acutely aware when they go on social media, when they reflect on their own journey, when they look around them, there is something wrong with the world. There is something wrong uh, with themselves. The good they wanna do, they often find they can't do it. the dysfunction and evil that they want to avoid, they find themselves drawn to at times, what's the problem? And what's the solution? Is there a solution to the problems that I face as a teen inside and I face as a teen in the external world? And if there is a solution, do I have a part to play in bringing it about? So you can see how one answers these four questions. Who am I? Where am I? What's the problem? What's the solution? Those are in large part going to determine how the next several decades of your life is going to unfold. These are foundational tectonic questions. And so in beginning to address these questions, a teenager is beginning to form their identity and really, along with that, their entire life's purpose. Now, in this process of identity formation, friendships become central. Teens aren't working through these questions alone, right? They're they're, uh, forming these answers through conversations with, yes, family, but often friends, and face-to-face, but also online. During this time of formation, the need to belong to a supportive tribe takes center stage. Teens are often seeking an alternative family uh, as an extension of their family of origin if it was pause if it was positive but if it was a negative experience in childhood they're looking for an alternative family to serve as an alternative family a few years ago i did an anonymous survey to some of the guys and girls that were part of the high school youth group that i led and i don't know if this is the same with this church or this community but when i asked the guys In kind of the, um, what would you say are your top three issues that you are battling with and struggling with? There's lots that that you have to uh, fight through as a teen, but what would be the top three that you're facing? And the guys pretty much unanimously said, struggles around pornography, drug and alcohol use, and friendship. And... By friendship, they meant trying to figure out how do I develop and get good friends without coming across too vulnerable, like I need a lot of friends, because I don't want to appear weak, but I want good friendships, but those friendships require me to be vulnerable, and so just trying to navigate that, um, that tricky relational space. So porn, drugs, friends for guys, and for girls, their top three issues were body image, self-esteem and self-worth, and sexual pressures that they felt were um, moving in on them in relationships. Now these issues, porn, drugs, friendships, body image, how we understand and, and value ourselves, decisions around what we're gonna do with our body, these are deeply personal and they're deeply important and they're deeply formative for one's entire life so the stakes are really high and teens recognize that on some level that's why the teenagers are a really stressful time because i think teens know understand at least intuitively these are really important issues that are scary to think and have to face and work through and it's easier sometimes just to run and hide and wish you could retreat back in the childhood but you cannot there is no going back you have to move forward So how do you move forward with hope and in a healthy way, in a positive way? Well, see, that's where the Bible comes in. Now, I am under no illusion that within this community, the Bible is likely not a particularly popular book with teens. But one of the reasons teens should love the Bible is that it addresses the questions teens are asking openly and honestly I mean think about the questions that are swirling around in every teen's heart. Who am I? What really matters in life? How do I get the most out of life? Am I am I loved? Am I important? Does my life has a large does my life have a larger purpose? Does life itself have a larger purpose? Where is all of this going? All of these questions are questions that the Bible offers hopeful answers to. And so if you ignore the Bible, you're actually ignoring the most powerful resource for answering those questions. No other resource tackles those questions head on in such an affirming and powerful way for teenagers. In fact, in my humble but accurate opinion, no other text offers a greater vision for the worth and value of teenagers than the Bible does. Now, why would I say that? Did you know that the Gospels are stories of Jesus pulling together a motley crew of teenagers. Those were his 12 disciples, they're sometimes called apostles, those first people whom Jesus called and said, come follow me. They were teenagers, and they weren't the best and the brightest. They weren't the most popular. They weren't the most influential of their day. And yet... Jesus chose them and used them to change the world in God-honoring ways. See, a lot of us picture Jesus going around with middle-aged, bearded men. But that is the wrong picture. How can I say that? Well, a few things. Number one, culturally, rabbis like Jesus took on disciples of a younger age than the rabbi. Because the idea was that the rabbi would pour their philosophy of life and ministry and their theology into their students so that when the rabbi passes on, the students would be able to continue. It wouldn't make sense to choose uh, disciples who are much older than you if you were a rabbi. A rabbi always chooses disciples of a younger age. And if Jesus begins his ministry at 30, most of the disciples are going to be under 30. In Matthew 11, Luke 10, John 13, Jesus calls his disciples little children, little ones. That would be really insulting if they were grown men, especially if they were older than Jesus within a Jewish context. Two of the apostles, James and John, were brothers. They had this mom who was trying to push and pressure Jesus to make sure that when Jesus established the kingdom, which she thought meant like a literal government right here and now, where Jesus was going to be president, she wanted James and John, her sons, to be on the right and left of Jesus. They, she, she knew that Jesus was, was going to be number one in this kingdom, but she was trying to advocate for her sons being vice president one, vice president two. She wanted her sons to be in positions of power. If James and John were grown men, Um, that, that likely would not have happened. A mother would not have advocated on behalf of a grown man who could have done it himself. And James and John are both called Sons of Thunder. That's a nickname that we're told in the Gospels Jesus gives James and John, Sons of Thunder, which means they were likely loud and foolishly bold, which, let's be honest, are two pretty good descriptors of most teenage guys. Right? Loud and foolishly bold. Sons of thunder. Lots of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. And lastly, in Exodus 30, Jewish law states that every male over the age of 20 was to pay a half shekel as a census offering when they visited the temple of God. Now in Matthew 17, Jesus instructs Peter to fish up this tax as all 12 with Jesus were going into the temple. And the gospel tells us that Peter fished up a four drachma in the mouth of the fish that he caught. And that's enough to pay for two men, himself and Jesus. So Jesus requests this payment only for Peter and himself, which by inference likely means the rest of the disciples were under the age of 20. Now, I challenge you, pick any gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read it through with that picture in your mind's eye, Jesus calling and teaching and equipping and putting on the front lines of his kingdom ministry, people somewhere likely between the ages of 15 and 19. I mean, imagine if I said we were launching a new initiative in and through this church and we're actually going to plant another church. And our core leadership team that we are going to build around is going to be the church's youth group. Maybe one or two young adults. What would your reaction to that news be? At best, you would likely think I was incredibly idealistic, but naive. At worst, you might think I was just completely idiotic. Because we all know you can't trust teenagers. With something that important. And yet God chose chose teenagers to launch his recreation project through. That to me is amazing. Is that wise of Jesus? Because if you read the Gospels, it's very clear that this, this group that he pulls around them, they lack influence, they lack money, they lack character. They um, are found wanting with maturity, poise. They lack emotional stability. They're very rarely loyal. They really struggle with humility. And yet they still end up being Jesus's first choice. Which is really, really cool because it shows us that Jesus is eager to invite and involve teens into frontline kingdom work. Then... But also now, teens matter, not just to God in some abstract way. God has been in the business since he became a human being in the person of Jesus to invite and involve teens in significant world-shaping mission. Which brings me to my counsel to teens. This is counsel that comes out of some of my own experience, my experience as a youth pastor, my experience as a pastor and as a parent. Number one, eat your Bible. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, when your words came to me, I ate them and they were my joy and my heart's delight. I mentioned this before, but the Bible is too important a book. Even if you don't consider yourself a believer, the Bible is too important a book not to be familiar with it. Now, if you don't know how to understand it, how to properly engage it, two things I would suggest. Number one, go on YouTube, find the Bible Project, it's a YouTube channel, and they make animated videos of Bible themes and Bible books that are designed to help people who feel intimidated by the Bible, don't really know. I've opened the Bible, and looking at some book called Ephesians. What's going on? Watch the video on Ephesians, it'll give you kind of an overview in about five to eight minutes. It'll help things make sense. Now you can start reading the book with context, and it's much easier to do that with books of the Bible. The other thing that I would challenge people to do, if they've never done this before, take one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, doesn't matter, just pick one. These are the historical accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. And just read through them. Don't start at the start of the Bible, start with the Gospels. Christianity begins and ends with the person of Jesus, so start there. And read through, and then as you do, dare God to reveal himself to you. Say, God, if you're real, if this thing is real, if this isn't a joke, I'm going to read through the Gospel of Matthew. Would you somehow speak to me through this book if you are real? Number two, choose your friends carefully. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. You have four levels of friendships in your life. Level one, th- these, this is your BFF. You might have one or two over the course of your whole life. These are people who know you intimately, know everything about you, um, and you would trust your life to them. That's level one. Level two, maybe five to 10 people, pretty good friends. Not quite you know, level one, but really solid friends. Then level three are people that you know, they're on your soccer team, you're in your class, you're friendly with, you know them, not super well, but you interact with them, it's fine. And then level four are people who you just know, kind of acquaintances, but you very rarely interact with them. Those are the four levels of relationships you're gonna have over the whole course of your life. Be very, very careful about who you allow into those first two levels. Because who your friends are, who your level one and level two friends are will have a profound shaping influence on your life, especially through the teenage years. And I would be so bold as to say, if you, if, I could, if you could introduce me to your level one and level two friends and I could get to know them, I feel like with a, a fair degree of certainty that I would be able to predict the next probably two decades of your life and how it's going to play out based on the values and the priorities of the level one and level two friendships in your life. Choose your friends carefully. Because if you, you become like those you walk with, like those you, um, your closest friends will have a shaping influence on you that, uh, that is incomparable to anything else. And so be very discerning about who you allow into that selective place in your life. Number three, respect the dignity of your body. Your body is a gift from God. So be disciplined in what you put into it the risks you take with it, and how you use it to interact with other people. Decisions around drugs and alcohol, risk-taking behaviors, and sex often have serious consequences that can be really destructive for both you and those around you. Your body is a gift from God. And so I would urge you to seek God's best for how to use it and enjoy it, because that is what God wants. He wants us to appreciate and enjoy our bodies. His commands, his instructions regarding um, how to express ourselves and how to interact with other people are not there to keep us from life. They're there to set us up so we can experience what Jesus called an abundant life. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Your body's a gift. Respect the dignity of it. And my last piece of counsel to the teens would be ditch... Churchianity. Ditch churchianity. Churchianity is a word I use to describe people who are kind of just kind of haphazardly doing the Christian thing. They kind of treat Jesus or Christianity as a hobby. Faith is kind of an accessory to their life. It's like a decoration in their home. It's not particularly meaningful or shaping. Churchianity as such... Is a complete joke and you need to ditch it. Instead, I want to challenge you to embrace true and genuine Christianity because true and genuine Christianity, it is challenging. It is fascinating. It is dangerous. It is joyous. It is powerful. It is wild. It is mind-blowing. It's meaningful and it is incomparable. And it begins with Jesus and it is centered on him. Turning your life over to Jesus And opening up yourself to the wild adventure of saying, Jesus, I am willing to follow you. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I'm willing because I trust you that you have the words to eternal life, that you are the way and the truth and the life. And by ditching churchianity, what we're saying is we're not going to casually follow Jesus it's not just going to be a thing you do on a Sunday sometimes and maybe I'll pop into youth group and when I'm going through hard times, maybe I'll flip open the Bible or I'll Google a Bible verse or something. This is about every day striving to follow Jesus and growing in him. 1 Corinthians nine twenty-four to 27 says this. This is counsel that was given by a church leader to a young group of Christians in the city of Corinth. He said to them, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's passion. That's someone that's saying, this isn't just a game. Christianity isn't a hobby. This needs to be your life, the center out of which you engage the rest of the world in ways that bring honor to God and good to your neighbor and love and flourishing to those around you. How do you develop that kind of passion? How do you nurture that kind of spiritual heart and tenacity? Well, 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself to be godly. Developing that kind of spiritual vibrancy doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up and think, wow, I'm really on fire for God now. You've got to train. You've got to get strong. How do you do that? Jesus said the most important command is this. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how I would do it if I was speaking to awkward 15-year-old teen Jeff. I would say, Jeff, every Sunday night, write down four things on a piece of paper. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Write those four words down. And then you're going to ask yourself these four questions. In the area of heart, relationships. What is the single most important thing I could do this week to strengthen and build a relationship in my life? Maybe it's just one relationship. A friend, a parent, uh, someone I haven't talked to in a while. Whatever it is. Soul. Jeff, what's the single most important thing that I could be praying for this week? It might be something for myself, it might be something for a friend, it might be something for a teacher, it might be something for a coach. But what's going to be my prayer focus for this week? Then mind. Jeff, what is the single most important thing you can do this week that will help me grow in my understanding of the Bible and how to live it out faithfully? Maybe I'm going to challenge myself to read through the gospel in a week. Maybe I'm doing a daily devotional and I'm going to make sure and prioritize. That I'm going to. Uh, the first thing I do every day is spend time in prayer, reading God's word. But what am I going to? What's the single most important thing I could do? And then strength. What is the most significant thing I could do this week to love and serve someone in my life in a practical way? What's one thing that I could do to show generosity? And in each of those areas, choose something that stretches you. If it's apologizing to someone, apologize. If it's serving at uh, in a volunteer opportunity, then sign up and do it. If it's spending 5, 10, 15 minutes in prayer for someone else, do it. But every week, come up with a goal in the area of heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then go after it. And watch how through each week, how in your pursuit of Jesus, how in your desire to run the race, not just haphazardly and just kind of casually, just to finish, you're trying to run to win, watch how God uses that. And even when you're following Jesus imperfectly and you're stumbling and you're making mistakes and it's two steps forward and it's three steps back, God will honor the intention. Spiritual growth and vibrancy never just happen any more than becoming fit and competitive in an athletic endeavor. just happens. Following Jesus will be one of the most difficult things you ever do if you're doing it biblically and seriously. However, following Jesus will also be the most amazing experience of your life. So lastly, how can we as a church support teens in their spiritual journey very quickly? Number one, affirm and celebrate them. Look for opportunities to affirm and celebrate the teens around you. Teens face a lot of criticism from a, you know, from a lot of directions. So make sure you're catching them doing good things, making good decisions, and then affirming and saying, that was great. I see growth there. I'm really proud of you. That's awesome. I'm so I'm so glad that you're part of our family. Number two, listen and cultivate empathy for our teens. It's easy when you see them making certain decisions or veering towards making certain Decisions you want to just spit out advice because you may know better than them But it's so important for a teen to know that you're a place where first you're going to seriously listen to them and understand where they're coming from And understanding what they're struggling with So listen to them and remind yourself that The things that they're upset about and are maybe crying over They might not be a big deal to you But they're a huge deal to this teen, and it can feel like it can feel like the end of the world because this is the first time they maybe have had to face this kind of loss or this kind of hurt, and you've faced it thirty times, so you can shrug it off. But they can't. So let's remember how what an unstable, stressful, uh, challenging time this is for them, and really extend grace to them. Yes, decisions that your teen is making may be clearly and objectively stupid. But we also have to remember that the executive center of the brain isn't even fully formed until age 25. You know, at 18, 19, a teen's big body can actually, re- often really betrays their maturity level. We expect them to be adults, but they're not there yet. And so we need to cultivate empathy for our teens. Number three, pray for them. And not just the safe prayers, not just a, God, please keep my teen safe. And help them to make good decisions and then have a good education and be successful in these. There's nothing wrong with those prayers, but those shouldn't be our only prayers for our teens. We should be inviting God to just intervene in our teens' lives in powerful ways where churchianity isn't isn't an option for them. They come to experience the love and power of God and they want to live into that with enthusiasm I try and remember to pray bold things for my kids when I'm praying for them because the safe prayers kind of come naturally. But praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in their life. And use me to help make that happen, God. You change me so that I'm the father and the friend and the mentor that they need so that they can step into significant kingdom leadership. Number four, we need to encourage them to nurture their passions. Teens are hungry for a sense of competency and mastery and allowing them to develop artistic or athletic passions can be a a really critical factor in helping teens to learn resiliency, develop character, come into an understanding of their God-given talents and gifts, which in turn can really open up a larger vision later in life for how God intends to use those experiences and those skills and those talents and those gifts, how God is shaping them and has shaped them to shape the world in ways that are good and God-honoring and positive and powerful. And lastly, and I mentioned this last week, in our, deck looking at the decade of childhood, a really important way we can support and encourage teens around us is to show them the way. And I don't mean point and say, that's how you should be living. I mean, show it ourselves. We are modeling to them. Uh, the maturity and the growth and the joy and the spiritual vibrancy which we would long for them to follow in our footsteps in that we are showing them the way we are leading by example we are being disciples teens desperately need role models who are showing them what an authentic serious joyful pursuit of jesus looks like and that doesn't have to mean that you have to be perfect in your walk as a Christian. I am not perfect. I try and take ownership of that as often as possible with my kids and say, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I reacted this way. I'm sorry I acted this way. That was not right. I'm asking your forgiveness. I'm going to ask God's forgiveness. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to try and do better. So teens don't need perfect... They don't need to see perfection. That's what I'm trying to say. Teens don't need to see perfection. What they need to see is growth and maturity and authenticity. They need to see us struggling to pursue Jesus. We should be able to say, like Paul said to a group, uh, uh, to one of the early church letters that he wrote, he said, you follow me as I follow Christ. We should be able to say to teens in our lives, I'm not perfect, but if you study my pattern of behavior and speech and, and intention, you follow, if you follow me, you will be following Christ because that's who I'm following. I'm not, I'm not interested in churchianity either. I want the real deal. So I'm all in with this and I'm taking this seriously. This week is really important to me because I became a Christian as a teenager in grade nine at the age of 14. I wasn't raised in a Christian home I had almost I had almost zero exposure to the Bible but one day in grade nine a friend told me that the most important decision I could make in my life was to ask Jesus to come into my life and accept him as my Lord and as my Savior. And to be honest, I didn't, re- I, didn't I, I really had no idea what she was talking about in terms of the gravity of what she was saying but I believe I remember having this sense deep, from the center of who I was, that what she just said was true, and I need to do it. I I, I know it was the Holy Spirit just confirming that truth in my heart beyond my capacity to even understand it. The most important thing I can do is to turn my life over to Jesus and then pursue him for the rest of my life. And I knew that was true. And I did it. And Jesus came into my life, and to make a long story very short, he lit my life on fire. He lit my heart on fire. And my life was transformed from something very self-centered and very meaningless to an unfolding adventure of glory that continues to this day. See, I came to discover my true identity and purpose in Christ, and I pray that every teen listening to this message We'll do the same.